Now, our subject matter this evening is the Eucharist. And I could finish this class in five seconds simply by telling you that the Eucharist is Jesus, period. And we can all, we could all go home. Um, but I want to flesh that out a little bit, make that a bit clearer, okay? So let's talk about the Eucharist. Let's talk about the Eucharist. And I have all of your notes for you here. I also have two additional pages for you. One is uh, something that includes two Eucharistic miracles. There are many, many more, but I just picked these two because I knew them best. And the other is a page that contains citations from some of the oldest writings that exist in, in all of Christian writings. And they're all about the Eucharist, all testifying to the fact that, you know, this is not just some kind of pious memorial. Okay? Do you have an extra pair of uh, notes? So, uh, hold on, what's that? Do you have an extra pair of notes? I, uh, I don't. Okay. Unless that's these. Okay, thank you. Okay? Um, so, the Eucharist. Let's, let's begin. The center of our faith. Because we believe that the Eucharist is Jesus, Literally. And this is an astonishing belief. We say that in that Eucharist, that thing which looks like a little white piece of bread or a cup, Jesus himself is actually personally here under the appearance of bread and wine. Now, let's talk about uh, ways in which people can be present, okay? Ways in which people can be present. I have all these on your notes. Christ is present to us in many ways. He himself said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I myself am present there. And it's true. There's something special about prayer in groups. We also believe as a church that Christ is present, mystically present, whenever the scriptures are proclaimed. And we believe that Christ is also mystically present somehow in the person of the priest. When you go to Mass and the priest says, the Lord be with you, and you say, and with your spirit, that's actually what you're acknowledging. That's actually what it means. But there's no presence that's equal to the presence of the Eucharist. Now, there are many ways in which people can be present to each other. If we're talking on the phone, there's a kind of presence there. If we gather together and we talk about someone who is not among us, maybe a friend who's you know, we haven't seen for years and we start retelling old stories about that friend. There's a kind of presence there. I read a letter written by my great-great-grandmother, written in like 1903, and she was talking about how hard life was on the farm in Ohio. And it was like she was present there. Okay? But none of those presences are equal to the actual person actually being present. And that's what we say the Eucharist is. The Eucharist, by analogy, is Jesus really actually there. All those other presences, um, and are talking on the phone or reading a letter, they're analogous. Jesus isn't really there, but it's sort of like, you know, there's some kind of a mystical, spiritual presence. But the Eucharist is he's actually there. He's actually there. Now, here's what we believe. We believe that at the moment of consecration, and that is when the priest holds up the host when the priest holds up the wine and he says this is my body this is my blood at the moment of consecration in the mass what we believe is that bread and wine on the altar change the simple way to say it is that they become jesus himself you could i could say what's the eucharist in fact 
if you're going to be interviewed to receive sacraments, I can guarantee you, this is at least one of my questions, what's the Eucharist? The simplest way to answer is with one word and one word only. The Eucharist is Jesus, okay? The Eucharist is Jesus. So at the moment of consecration, the Eucharist is become that, that bread and wine change. Now, the formal definition that comes from the Council of Trent is body and blood, soul and divinity. But sometimes with all those syllables and all those words, we lose the beauty of the simplicity of it. Um, it looks the same in every way, shape and form as it was before. And yet we claim it is not. We claim that it is not the same. Um, and I hope this begins to be clearer as we go on. The substance has changed. Now, that's rather a technical term. Uh, this page here. I'm going to describe this in, in Aristotelian fashion. Aristotle was the one who came up with these terms, not me or not the church. But substance is the stuff that it's made of. Aristotle had four formal causes. I won't get into them all, but just two here. The substance is stuff that it's made of. What is the substance of this? Answer? Paper. Now, the other term that the church uses, borrowed from Aristotle, is accidents. And accidents are things like the color, the shape, the size. And we almost have to retrain our thinking to, to, to think in these terms. Because when I say substance to people, people think like drug abuse, right? Substance abuse. When I say accident, they think like two cars just crashed. But when we talk about the Eucharist, kind of expand your vocabulary just a bit. The substance of this thing, what is it? Paper. The accidents of this thing, what, are, what is it? White, uh, eight and a half by 11, printed on one side. Those are accidents. Okay. So when we talk about the Eucharist, we're talking about something that has substance and accidents. The substance, we say, has changed. So let me really try to rifle this through to you here. Is it bread anymore? Yes or no? No. 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 Okay. Now, most people, they think, well, you know, like the Jesus is present in the bread, or the bread reminds us of Jesus. Question, is it bread? Answer, no, it's not. Okay. Wine ceases to be wine. Question, is it wine? Answer, no, it's not. I know it has every accident of wine. It still smells, looks, tastes, weighs, everything the same. But we say that the substance has changed. Now, that's quite a remarkable statement. That would be like if I held up this paper and I said, yeah, I know it looks like paper and it, it weighs like paper and it would burn like paper, but it's not paper. It's pure gold. Now, I'd be crazy if I said that because it would contradict every sense that you have. And when Jesus said this about the Eucharist, it contradicted every sense that we had. Every sense that we had. In fact, Thomas Aquinas wrote a song on this. I'm not quite sure if you ever... Who's ever heard of Adoro Te Devote? I'm just curious. Okay, so at least one person's heard of it. It's a Eucharistic song, and if you get more into the church and you go to any kind of high mass or anything like that, maybe for Corpus Christi, maybe you'll hear him sing Adoro Te Devote. And Thomas Aquinas wrote it, and the words that he used were um, gustus tactus in te falitur, uh, solo uh, auditu creditur. What you can touch, what you can taste, what you can see, these things will fail you. The only thing you can trust is your hearing. And then he says, truth himself spoke truly. Who is the truth himself? Who is the truth himself? Jesus. Jesus, the truth himself, spoke truly when he told us this, and that's why we believe it. 
period. Okay? So Christ does not come down into the Eucharist. Please purge these thoughts from your head. They're very hard to get out of your head. Most people are rather comfortable with the idea that Jesus kind of comes down in the Eucharist or Christ is present in the bread. But we don't believe that. We say that there is no more bread, there is no more wine. And the word for that is transubstantiation. Who's heard that word before? Transubstantiation. In other words, the substance gets changed. All right? Now, there are rare examples of Eucharistic miracles in which not only the substance changes, but the accidents change. And I have two of them here for you on your notes. Don't read them now, please. You can read them later, because don't, we don't have enough time to get through everything. Uh, but there, there, believe me, there's, there's half a dozen of these, or, 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 or dozens of these, I should say. I just picked out two at random. One, because I went there, the Eucharistic miracle of Lanciano, it's in Italy, and you can still go there today. It's a 1,200-year-old host, and you can still see it. The other one is the Eucharistic miracle of Buenos Aires, 1996. And the reason why I picked that is the bishop that was involved became Pope Francis. Okay, so it's a little bit contemporary for us. Rare examples in which the, 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 not only the substance changes, but the accidents change. Okay? Uh, so you can look into that in just a second. But the moment of consecration, when the priest holds up, and that's why he holds up the host and, and waits for a second. It's very special. And they, they ring the bells. Why do they ring the bells? Is it to say, hey, dummy, pay attention. This is important. Okay? You know, you, all you sl- people who are sleeping out there, wake up. This matters. Okay? The moment of consecration. And by the way, I don't want to overwhelm you with data and facts here, but the words of consecration are very simple. This is my body, this is my blood. If they ever change the words of consecration to something other than this is my body, this is my blood, it's not the Eucharist. That's the irreducible form, the words. Uh, Different times in history, the words that the priest used to consecrate the host have changed slightly, but that's always been there. This is my body, this is my blood. Um, If a priest ever says Mass and you're present there and he says something other than, you know, this is like Jesus' body, just get up and leave, you're wasting your time. It's not a Mass, okay? This is my body, this is my blood. That's the bare, bare, bare minimum. He holds up the host, he holds up the chalice. Um, And from the Council of Trent, just to make it clear, the Council of Trent was a church, church council, 15... 46 to 1563. By consecration, bread and wine change their substance and become the body and blood of Christ. This is called transubstantiation. In these consecrated species, Christ himself is present. And that's the important thing to remember. Christ himself is present. Living and glorious in a true and a real and a substantial manner, body, blood, soul, and divinity, the host and the chalice are equal but different expressions. Allow me to pause there and explain. Maybe you'll go to a church someday where you can receive the host and you can take a couple steps over and you can receive from the chalice. Personally, I don't do it here because I have experience of doing it in my past parish and people invariably, invariably spill the cup. It's just, they're well-intentioned, but somebody somewhere, so I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I stopped doing it. People say, can we have the cup? No, you can't. Why? Because eventually with enough people, somebody will spill it, and I just can't stand. Because if the, if the cup spills onto the floor, what just spilled onto the floor? Jesus. The Eucharist. Body and blood, soul, and divinity. I can try my best to mop it up with a towel, but it's just not good. Okay, so anyway, 
If you receive the, from the host, and then you take a couple of steps over and you receive from the chalice, question, have you received communion twice? Yes or no? no. Yes. You have received communion twice. Because please understand this. Even though at Mass we say, this is my body, this is my blood, Jesus is not in two halves, is he? No. Any more than you're in two halves. So when the priest consecrates the host and the consecrates the, the wine at Mass, has he consecrated twice? Yes or no? No. Yes. yes. Two complete consecrations, mm-hmm. each making the Eucharist whole and complete. Just to let you know, it's, uh, it's called the principle of concomitance, but I don't want to get down, go down that road. If you ever go to a Mass where they give it out the cup, please don't think it's extra. Why, why do they, just as a side note, why do they give out the cup sometimes? Do they? At Mass, some, par- some places will give out the cup sometimes. The reason is because it's a, it's a fuller expression of the eating and the drinking. But in the most places that don't give out the cup, that only give out the host, are you missing anything? No. Please understand the answer is no. If the answer were yes, then we would all be doing you a grave injustice every single week. And that would have been the case for centuries and centuries and centuries. Um, So no, you're not missing anything. You're not being denied anything. Oftentimes people think that they are, and it's just not true. The reason why they don't give it out everywhere is... It's very, very simple. People spill it, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so Christ is entirely present under each form. Christ can't be divided. He's no longer dead. When the priest says Mass, and, and he has the two consecrations, this is my body, this is my blood, do you know why there are two consecrations? Not just because Jesus did it at the Last Supper. It's because the body and the blood being separate are an expression of what happened to Jesus on the cross, where body and blood were separated, and he died. True or false? Jesus Christ died. Yes. True. Okay. He had the experience separation from soul and body, or physically speaking, body from blood. But he's not dead anymore. He's not dead anymore. So the whole of the Eucharist is present under under either form. And I always like to say, please remember that they say the Eucharist takes 15 minutes to dissolve in you after you've received it. So you are a living tabernacle. Remember that in the parking lot. Okay. I have my experience of what parking lots and churches are like. and They're not always nice places. Okay, so that's the Eucharist. Now, let's back this up a little bit. Among non-Catholics, when you mention what the Eucharist is, you get two reactions, two reactions. Either they think you're terribly, terribly misled or perhaps crazy. You know, they're like, how, how can that little wafer be God? Yeah, I know it sounds crazy, but I didn't make it up. Jesus did. One of my favorite expressions of this actually comes from an Anglican, um, C.S. Lewis. He once said of the Eucharist, Jesus never said, take this, all of you, and understand it. He said, take this, all of you, and eat it. Okay? You'll, if you want to try to understand it, allow me to give you an insight. When two people love each other, they just want to be as close as they possibly can be. You want to become one with the person that you love. You want to become one. If you could squeeze the life out of them and become one, you'd do it. Well, you can't. But God can become one with you. He can become your food. And if you understand love, I think you understand a little bit better why Jesus decided to do this. That's how close he wants to be. So close that he actually becomes your nourishment. He actually becomes your food. Okay? So when you hear this, either think you're crazy 
Or they think it's the most fascinating idea in the whole world. And this is another reaction that people have. Who's ever heard of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton? She's a used to be an Episcopalian, became a Catholic. One of the reasons she became a Catholic, she took a trip to Italy. And in Italy, uh, she learned about how when the, when the people were sick, these priests would come around and bring them communion. And she was like, what an amazing belief. They, they think that when they're sick, Jesus actually comes to them. Oh, what a great belief. They're absolutely amazed by it, just amazed by it. I, 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 I remember talking to a Protestant, I had a roommate Protestant in college, a Presbyterian. I wish I could believe that were true. I wish I could believe that were true, he said. So that's another reaction people have. I went to Spain once um, in college. Um, and who knows what a monstrance is? Raise your hand if you know what a monstrance is. Who knows what adoration of the Blessed Sacrament is? Okay, we have a little adoration. I don't get too far afield here. We'd be at this all day. But there's a devotion in the Catholic Church called adoration. And in that devotion, you take the consecrated host and you place it inside of a container that looks like gold rays spilling out in all directions. Have you ever seen one of these in a picture maybe? Yes. It's called a monstrance. It comes from the Latin word monstrare, which means to show. This is the thing in which you show Jesus. Okay? We, and, and we have an adoration chapel. Perhaps you can stop by sometime and there's Jesus in the monstrance. Okay? Anyway, I was in Spain one, and in Spain they have monstrances that they've made four, five, six hundred years ago and they're eight, nine, ten feet tall. They're amazing, intricate works of art with little angels in them and all kinds of intricate carvings. They're absolutely spectacular golden works of art. And they're all in museums. They're all hidden away in museums now. So we're going through this museum and all these students who I'm with are looking at these amazing monstrances. They say, what is that thing? And I said, well, that's called a monstrance. I said, what's it for? And then I got to explain to them the Eucharist. And this was their reaction. Some people were like, oh, boy, you Catholics, boy, are you crazy. I thought you were bad before, but now I know you're all insane. And the other half, like, wow, you Catholics actually believe that's really him? That's amazing. Tell me more. Okay, so this is the part that I want to answer, the, the part of you that says, tell me more. That's what I want to try to talk to you right now. How do you know that's the Eucharist? How do you know that's Christ himself? I'd love to believe that too. Convince me. There's three ways to convince you. And this is on the back side of your first page of notes. Three ways to convince you. Number one, what have Christians believed from the beginning? Number two, what did Jesus say in the scriptures? And number three, what effects does this belief have on those who believe it? So what did Christians believe from the beginning? Okay, And that's on this little page here. You can look at it at your leisure. Uh, with various notes from various ancient sources. Saying in all kinds of different ways what the Eucharist is. Um, but understand this. No one for the first thousand years of Christianity. Now, that's a long time, understand. A thousand years ago um, was the year 1023, a long time ago. For a thousand years, nobody doubted that the Eucharist was Jesus. There's no record of anybody going along and saying it's not the very first time there's any written record of anybody saying well maybe it's just a symbol the year was 1088 and we even know his name Berengarius of Tours he's the first person ever to put into print no the Eucharist really isn't Jesus he died reconciled to the church by the way um, 
but for such an extreme belief as this, and let's face it, this is pretty, pretty out there, right? I mean, it's one thing to say God loves you, and it's another thing to say uh, your sins are forgiven in baptism. These are nice things to believe. Um, but for this belief to say that that, you, that host is actually him, if that weren't true, do you really think that for a thousand years there'd be no record of people protesting it in writing? There would be no record of people stepping forward and saying, now come on. I mean, maybe you've, you, you, maybe you've cooked the soup a little bit too thick, you know? Do you think just maybe you've overdone this? But there isn't. There's no record of protest. So, again, you can take a look at your notes. So, what did the Christians believe from the beginning? If you want to understand what Christians believe, always ask yourself, lead off of that question, what have they believed from the start? Because that's what I want to believe too. Now, please don't misunderstand me also when I make this point. Um, The doctrines that we believe don't change, but our understanding of them does deepen. Almost like, imagine a photograph of the night sky with time-lapse photography. And when you look, you've all seen these pictures of the night sky with a zillion stars, far more than you can see by the naked eye. No one doubts those stars are actually up there. It's just that you can't see them all at once with the power of your naked eye. Is the camera and time-lapse photography adding anything to the sky that wasn't there before? No. They're simply capturing everything that was there. Think of the church going through time as almost like a a camera with time-lapse photography. It is the same picture, but we are understanding it with greater and greater clarity. It's uh, It's called the development of doctrine. So we will understand things a bit more clearly than some of the earliest writings are, are, are expressing it. We, they might not use the exact same vocabulary, but I think you'll recognize the same tenets, the same basic faith. And that's the point. What have Christians believed from the beginning? Number two, what did Jesus himself say in the scriptures? Okay, what did he say in the scriptures? And here's where I need to take you back a bit to try to appreciate this with fresh ears. Because if you're a cradle Catholic, you're very accustomed to the idea of hearing the, the, the body and blood of Christ. In fact, to take, to take the point a step further, if you are raised in a Christian society, you're very accustomed to hearing about the body and blood of Christ. In fact, we have several cities in this country named after the Blessed Sacrament. What are they? Corpus Christi, Texas, Sacramento, California. Um, uh, There's probably a couple more that I'm forgetting, but we're used to this, right? The body and blood of Christ, we're, we're accustomed to it. Let's go back to what it would have been like for Jesus' first listeners, the very first time that it was ever said. It would have been inexpressibly shocking Okay, inexpressibly shocking that a rabbi would stand, for, stand up and say, eat my flesh, drink my blood. So please try to appreciate that. Let's imagine Martin Luther King. He's up there, he's giving a speech, right? He's doing his thing. And then in the midst of his speech, he suddenly says, and if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. All of you would say, well, did, did I catch that right? Do I need a hearing aid? Did, did I misunderstand? Uh, did the speaker have a, a glitch? You'd say, would he say what? Imagine, any, take, any, take any great speaker. I think I have Abraham Lincoln down on your... You'd think he lost his mind. Well, it was no different when Jesus first said it. Um, and all the more so, as I'll explain in just a second, because if you were a Jew, it was expressly forbidden to eat flesh and drink blood. It was the holiness code of the book of Leviticus. So let's real briefly go over this. I encourage you to look over it for yourself. The chapter that makes this most clear of all is John chapter 6, all right? 
John chapter 6. Now, the, the, the shortest summary of John chapter 6 is in your notes for you. A very large crowd followed Jesus after the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. Who knows about the loaves and the fishes multiplication? Everybody? Yes? Thank you. Good. Okay. Now, Jesus wants to bring those people to faith in him. He isn't working, he isn't, he isn't working miracles so that he can be like a magician who has parlor tricks. He wants them to, every miracle Jesus works is ordered towards making them believe in him. He's never just like, hey, everybody, watch this, shazam. I just, made, I just walked on water. He couldn't care less about impressing you. He wants you to know who he is. And in this case, he wants to reveal to them the Eucharist. So they follow him around after the multiplication of loaves and fishes. And Jesus turns to the crowd and says, you should be working for the food that lasts to eternal life. And to make a long story short, the people say, what food is this? And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now they all begin to complain. They say, oh, what's the matter with this guy? And then he really starts to get specific. I am the bread of life. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. The bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Now the people become annoyed. This is John 6 I'm summarizing for you. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They hadn't misunderstood him. They understood him correctly. They were right to be stupefied. And rather than clarifying himself, he doubles down and says that he again and again and again with greater emphasis, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him on the last day. My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. And just to make a, some of the little parallel point, if you could go to the original Greek texts and you could see the words that are used, you'd find that the verb to eat changes in ver, in, in, within John chapter 6. The, the verb changes from the Greek word phagain to the Greek word trogain. And the, that means eat versus gnaw and chew. So Jesus begins by saying, if you don't if, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He who gnaws and chews on my flesh like the kind of word that you'd use to describe a wolf ripping, you know, flesh off a bone. He's just as explicit and, and, and straightforward as he can possibly be. And the people, are, they're, they're dumbfounded. I understand, these people who were already following him, they were already trying. And when this happens, some people get up and they walk away. Some people get up and they walk away. I'll explain that in just a second. Um, it's the only time in the scriptures in which anyone ever leaves Jesus for doctrinal reasons when he tells them about the Eucharist. And just for fun, you know the verse in the scriptures in which people walk away from Jesus because they, they don't believe in the Eucharist? It's John 6, verse 66. I just think that's kind of cool. Okay. John 6, 6, 6. And many no longer associated with him. Um, why didn't he stop and explain himself? Why didn't he clarify himself? He'd always clarified himself before. He spoke the parable of the sower. People didn't understand it. Jesus told him what the parable of the sower was. He spoke about the parable of the talents. People didn't understand. Jesus told him what the parable of the talents was. At the death of Lazarus, people didn't understand. Jesus explained at the death of Lazarus. Now the crowd rightly and justly demands that Jesus clarify himself for these bizarre statements, but he doesn't back down, he doubles down. Amen, amen, I say to you, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Um, he says it four times, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Twelve times he says, I'm the bread come down from heaven. Now this is the point that I'd like to make. He couldn't afford to get this wrong. 
Eating flesh and drinking blood were strictly forbidden by the holiness code of the book of Leviticus. Why? It's what pagans did. Now, I have a real-life example to help explain this. Um, I have a friend in college who studied uh, uh, sociology and um, environmental science in Kenya. And he actually lived among the bushmen, the tribesmen in Kenya. And he told me about a ceremony that that the Kenyan tribesmen still carry out to this day in which they literally pass around a cauldron drinking the blood of a gazelle. Why do they drink the blood of the gazelle? Because the blood is the spirit of the beast. And they believe if they drink the spirit of the gazelle, they'll get the speed of the gazelle. That is a classic pagan practice. Not just the Kenyan Bushmen. It's, for some reason, century after century, culture after culture, they all seem to recognize that the blood is the life. And if they drink the blood, they'll drink in the life. So they want to get strong, they drink the blood of the bull. They want to get fast, they drink the blood of the gazelle. That's why Leviticus said, don't drink the blood like the pagans drink the blood. And I, I venture to guess, I'm, I'm guessing when I think that it's one of Jesus' motives. It's, it's a bit of a guess on my part. But in Jesus' case, I think he wants us to eat and drink his life and his spirit right into him. That's the whole point. He wants us to eat and drink his life and his spirit into them. But he couldn't afford to get that wrong. Um, Who alone can amend the Bible? God can, right? And effectively, Jesus does. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, and quote, there were many who no longer continued to be in his company. Okay? So why do we believe it? Very, very simply, and it's it's really just this humbly simple, because Jesus said so. I have this little section here. Consider the use of words. Words can make things real depending on the authority of the speaker. If a police officer says to you, you're under arrest, guess what? You're under arrest. If the umpire says, you're out, guess what? You're out. Um, Consider how God speaks. Um, When he he spoke, when he said, let there be light, guess what? There was light, right? Uh, And when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, well, guess what? That's his body And that's his blood. So what did Jesus say in the scriptures? That's what he said in the scriptures. Lastly, um, look at the lives of those who believe. Look at the lives of those who believe. This is very important. By the fruit, you'll know the value of the tree. And you find something really strange about the saints. They relied on the Eucharist. They, 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 They weren't complete without it. It was like their food. It was like their water. It was like their air. And this is no exaggeration. Every saint since records on canonization have been kept, have been devoted to the Blessed Sacrament. And some of these little quotations here to help you. St. Cyprian writing in the 3rd century about Christians who were in prison would request that someone would bring them the Blessed Sacrament so that they would not deny their faith when they were being put to death, when they were being thrown to the lions or covered with pitch and tar and set on fire. Please bring me the Blessed Sacrament so that I will be able to resist, they said. Now when they say that, Allow me to just ask you this question. Are they fools? Are they deluded? Are they crazy? Or maybe, are they on to something? Okay. Are they on to something? So the saints universally believed this. And again, if you want to know the value of a medicine, look at what it does to those who take it. The Catholic faith, when lived fully, makes sinners into saints. Um, and here's another thing. Now, this is just anecdotal. Again, just anecdotal. My my little part as a priest. Whenever anyone leaves the church, 
There's one teaching they're absolutely certain to deny. And that is the teaching about Jesus in the Eucharist. Because they cannot believe in Jesus in the Eucharist and at the same time walk away from him. They just can't do it. They always, always, always begin by denying Jesus is really there. They have to almost to be sane uh, before they can leave the church. If they try to hold on to that belief, they always end up coming back. Little story here. I knew a priest who left the priesthood and the Catholic faith and became a Mormon. And a priest story, just the gist of the story here, called him on the phone. How can you turn your back on Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament? That one question led him back to the faith and to the priesthood. Okay, so what I've discovered about the Eucharist is that if you can get this in here, in your heart, not just in your head, but if you can get this in your heart, you will really be set for life. You'll really be set for life. Because no matter what happens to you, You will always, even if you cannot receive the Eucharist, be able to go and pray in the presence of the Eucharist. And that understanding that that's really Jesus, that'll anchor you. If you know he's really there, you can get through anything. You can get through anything, okay? So how deeply do you believe? If you you believe partly, pray for more faith. Um, It's a funny thing about faith. It does come as, as a gift, as a consequence of prayer, but... Faith really grows when you do acts of charity and love. In other words, if you take everything Jesus told us to do and actually start living it, you'll find that your faith grows and you didn't even recognize it happening. And one of those things is going to be your deepening of your faith in this Eucharist. So do you believe? i tell you a little story here. Um, story of a church mouse. A priest told me this. I don't know if it was true or it was anecdotal. But a church mouse, once upon a time, back in some country parish, scurried across the altar, grabbed the host in his mouth, and ran away back to his mouse hole with the host. And there in the church, he nibbled up the host and he, and he, and he ate the host. Question, did the mouse receive communion, yes or no? No. The answer is no. And this is an important distinction. He did eat the Eucharist. Did the mouse eat the Eucharist, yes or no? Yes. Yes. Was the Eucharist body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, yes or no? But was there communion between the mouse and God? No. Okay. So I I, I phrase it this way. Are you a man or a mouse? Um, When you receive it, do you receive it like that mouse received it? And that you just scurry away back to your little hole and turn on your TV again or whatever it is that you do? Or do you receive that host like he intended you to receive that host? And, you know, even a silent little prayer of thanks, even as you're walking out the door, um, a little lifting of your heart, even if you don't feel anything in your heart, my Lord and my God, thank you, anything at all. Receive it like a man, not like my little mouse in the story. And one of the most damning quotations I ever heard about many Catholics in the Eucharist comes comes from the same priest who told me that story. He said, most people have more faith in a bottle of Tylenol than they have in in the Eucharist. Because when they take a Tylenol, they darn well expect something to happen. But most of the time when they take the Eucharist, they expect nothing to happen. Where's the, more faith in a stupid pill. And that's devastating only because it's true. Okay? So I present to you the Eucharist. I invite you to believe. It's a lifelong process. But please anchor yourself in these basic doctrinal facts. Okay? Um, effects of the Eucharist brings the body under control of the spirit. The single best means of growing in chastity, patience, temperance, every virtue. 
God desires to enter into the soul of each of us, and that's why receiving communion worthily is very pleasing to God. I think oftentimes we think of God as a celestial taskmaster, or a celestial rule maker, or a celestial traffic cop. We fail to recognize God is, is the ultimate lover, and he wants to be with you. I think if you could, if you could somehow have some kind of a mystical vision of God, I think you'd be overwhelmed at not only the intensity of it, but also the innocence and the simplicity of it. I really do. I think you'd be overwhelmed that God's love for you is as simple and innocent as a tiny little infant baby or a little toddler. Um, But it's as all-consuming as the hottest blazes of the sun. Something like that would be what it was like. So it's very pleasing to God when you receive communion well. And if you love him, you, you care very much about what's very pleasing to God. Every reception of the Eucharist increases the grace in your soul um, to the degree that you've opened yourself before him. And a few little practical guidelines here, guidelines for receiving the Eucharist. Um, Understand this quote from St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Regretfully, this quote was stricken from the lectionary and is no longer read at any mass, which I think is a terrible crime. But... This is the quote, which now no longer is ever read at any mass. If anyone eats or eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily, he will be held to account for the Lord's body and blood. A man must examine himself first and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. If he eats and drinks unworthily, not recognizing the Lord's body for what it is, he eats and drinks a damnation on himself. And this is perhaps not even known, but if it's known, it's not it's not repeated enough. You, you shouldn't casually, cavalierly walk up to the Eucharist and just take it like it's the thing to do. You should be in what we call the state of grace. Do you know what that means? Raise your hand if you know what it means to be in the state of grace. Raise your hand if you don't know what it means. It means you're not conscious of any serious sin. Okay? If somebody asks you, have you committed any serious sin? And I don't want to get too far afield as to exactly what that means. You say, no, as best I can, I've got a clean conscience. And if you do not have a clean conscience, and you're, you shouldn't go get communion, and what you'll discover in the church is many people walking up to communion, and they have no intention of receiving. They have their arms crossed like this when it comes time to receive communion. And this is the universal symbol. Every priest, deacon, bishop knows this means don't give me communion. Give me a blessing instead. Okay? So please, don't get communion um, if you've done something you'd be really embarrassed to tell somebody. I mean, a mortal sin, Okay? Don't get communion. Go to confession first. You must go to confession first if you're in a state of mortal sin. It's a serious sacrilege to receive communion in a state of mortal sin. Okay? Um, that's your first big and most important guideline. Here's your second. It's what's called the Eucharistic fast. Again, this has been made much easier. Um, you only have to fast for one hour. Now, how hard can that be? Okay? You only have to fast for one hour before receiving communion. So sometimes I'll see these people you know, eating in church. And I'm like, where, 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 where's your head, amigo? You, haven't you ever heard of the Eucharistic fast? Please don't. It's the slightest, slightest. Way. Sometimes I think the church takes it too easy on us. It used to be all night. That's why mass was always in the morning. After that, it was three hours. Now it's only one hour. Sometimes I think we should make it tougher again just to make people shape up a little bit, but I'm not in charge, right? Um, that's a decision for church management, and as I like to say, I'm not in management, I'm in sales, okay? <laughs> um, 
But don't receive communion if you've had something to eat. Medicine doesn't count as something to eat. Okay? If you're sick and you have to have medicine. Uh, a drink of water doesn't count as something to eat. Okay? Uh, but Starbucks Frappuccino, yes, that does. So please, Eucharistic fast. Another question that frequently comes up, and this is very hard for people to understand. Why can't Protestants go to communion? And this is basically the answer why. Because since ancient times, the Eucharist has been a sign of full membership in the church. And it's one of the reasons why we call it communion. Now, that's what we partly what we believe the Eucharist means. It's not just Jesus really there. It's also a symbol of full membership in the church. Well, guess what? That full membership, that communion, it just simply doesn't exist between people who don't share the same faith. So we ask, please don't receive communion unless you've professed the Catholic faith. That's why you'll be receiving your first communion, um, many of you, at the Easter Vigil. Um, but if anyone ever asks you about that, they always ask it in a hurt sense because they take it personally, as if we believe like they're not good enough for Jesus. That's not in any way, shape, or form what we believe. It's just this. The integrity of what we believe in the Eucharist can't be divided. And one of the things we believe is that it's not just Jesus, but it's a symbol of full membership. And we don't want to contradict that. We've never contradicted it. It's part of our faith. Okay? So it's, for a lot of people, I found, they, they just want to do the right thing. Like, especially if they're visitors in church. Maybe they're visitors at Christmas. Maybe they're visitors at Easter. Maybe they're visitors at a wedding. Maybe they're visitors at a funeral. Those are the four times in which people who aren't Catholic, by and large, show up in Catholic churches. Nine out of ten of them just want to do the right thing. You know, like if you go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, you're supposed to wear a little yarmulke hat. Nine out of ten people, they just want to do the right thing. So just tell them the right thing is just you can come up and ask for a blessing, but you're not supposed to get communion, okay? This is another question among people that are very, very pious and devoted. How many times a day can I receive communion? Would you believe the church put a limit on it? The answer is twice. Twice. You can go to Mass. You can turn around and go to Mass all over again. But so as maybe to kind of tell people not to just go to Mass all day long um, and get in the idea that more is better, the church has said just don't, don't go to Mass more than twice, not more than twice a day. There are exceptions. If you go to Mass twice a day and then you also go to somebody's funeral... Okay, you can receive a third time. Somebody's funeral and somebody's wedding. Okay, you can receive a fourth time. Somebody's funeral, somebody's wedding, and you yourself die at the end of the day, and the priest brings you communion, you can receive a fifth time. But generally speaking, twice, okay? So um, there's the Eucharist. It takes half an hour to learn and a lifetime to love. <laughs>